Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. This is Mark Pringle. With me is my colleague Jasper Murison Bowie. Hi, Mark. And in the third Zoom window is our very, very special guest, Vicky Wickham. Hi, Vicky. Hi, both of you. <laughs> Vicky is perched on her eerie in New York City. And this is eight o'clock in the evening, London time. I've had my first gin and tonic of the day. And we'll be hearing sirens and all of that sort of New York City soundscape. So for those who don't know, I mean, Vicky is legendary character in the music business over the years. I think that's fair to say. Produced on the fantastic pioneering pop TV series Ready, Steady, Go. Subsequently, manager of LaBelle and in many ways, a co-creator of LaBelle as an artist and a friend and manager of Dusty Springfield and subsequently of the likes of Morrissey, Mark Armand. Vicky, tell us about how you got into pop music as a professional activity. Totally by default. Um, I was in London. I was working. I had several jobs and I had one job that I really liked, which I was working for radio BBC Light Entertainment, it was called then. Mm-hmm. And my, my job was a production assistant. And the writer, my producer and my boss, Charles Chilton, wrote these wonderful one-hour specials about, like, I don't know, Flanagan and Allen or the Mormons or the <laughs> songs from the First World War. And so we would have artists, you know, singers, musicians, actors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then my job was to put the whole thing together and make it a one-hour program. And I learned a lot, needless to say. But I th- I was thinking one day that it's kind of silly. I should be doing television, not mm-hmm. radio. And I don't quite know why, but I left thinking everybody would want me. Nobody, wa- <laughs> nobody wanted me. <laughs> L- luckily, one of my really good friends, Caroline Webb Carter, was seeing somebody at Associated Rediffusion, somebody somebody called Elkin Allen. We went to see Elkin, who said, I don't have anything for you at the moment, but a secretarial job will come up. No, I don't want to be a secretary. So he was great. He sort of lectured me and said, you want to be anything you can be just to get your foot in the door. And about a week later, called me up and said, come in, I've got something for you. Sat me down and said, yes, you're a secretary, but I promise you, Anyway, cut a long story short, he had this idea for a pop music show called Ready, Steady, Go. And by the time we were putting together the pilot and getting it on air, I was producing it. Did I know anything about pop music or about (laughs) Not a thing, but nor did anybody else. So the show was picked up and luckily a couple of other young people, I mean, we were young in those days, came in and we started working on a programme called Ready, Steady, Go. And Elkham was marvellous. He left us alone. Yeah. Just great. It's, it's amazing. I mean, Ready, Steady, Go was so different from anything that had come before it, really. I mean, I suppose some of Jack Good's shows sort of pointed in its direction to some extent. But then he all had a lot of really stiff stuff and not much pop music on television full stop. Did you feel that what you're doing was revolutionary from a very early point? No, not at all. We, you know, we just were going out to, you know, as you, as you would at our age, going to clubs, seeing people, listening to Radio Caroline, talking to people. And, you know, it suddenly became very obvious that we could have these people on the show, that when we went to see the Rolling Stones and we loved Brian Jones, who had the best hair in the world, we could say, <laughs> you know, we could say, come on the show. And they did. And it was honestly, it was just gut reaction and luck. I mean, did any of us foresee any of this? No. Fantastic. I mean, also that, um, did you lo- always love black music yourself personally? Was, was R&B something which always chimed with you? Because Ready, Steady, Go was fantastic in that respect. It really focused frequently on particularly American black music. I didn't even know about black music. I was brought up on Gilbert and Sullivan <laughs> <laughs> and, and South Pacific. I mean, I knew nothing. And as we started Ready Steady, you know, there were very few black acts or artists in England. So inevitably, you know, we were booking all the all the white acts, etc. And Dusty Springfield. We became friends. Yes. And Dusty would play me these great blue soul R&B records. And that's when I fell in love with them and suddenly went, we have to have these people on and literally would call agents and say, are they coming over? We could use them. And as luckily the show became big enough that it was worth people bringing them over 
because they knew they would be on the show. Fantastic. We've got an interview with Dusty Springfield from 1963, and she talks of being, when she was with the Springfields, sitting on a hotel bed in Nashville and hearing Dionne Warwick for the first time and just falling in love with the sound. And, you know, we all, obviously you, but ourselves as well, regard her as probably one of the great British soul singers and to all intents and purposes. Definitely. What was it like producing this show? I mean, it seems marvellously chaotic in a peculiar kind of way. It was chaotic. Producing the show was, well, there was a, there was a team of us. We, we were all opinionated. We were all argumentative. So it was, <laughs> you know, it was great. I mean, when I would say somebody, you know, like, why, what about the Beach Boys? Somebody would say, ooh, you know, that's, that's not for England. And, and then somebody else, thank God, would say, but have you heard it? You know, so, you know, we did it literally by, I don't know, I guess, you know, by instinct. And yeah. there never was any real production. And that's a kind of, in, in retrospect, that's what, what worked with the show, was even when the show went on the air, the cameras were these huge, big, old-fashioned cameras, and we had dancers in the studio. The dancers were small compared to the cameras. <laughs> and the camera was like, just zoomed through. And you would see people go, OK, I'm out the way, I'll get out the way, I'll get out the way. And what, was it broadcast live? Was it always yeah. broadcast live? Wow. So, only, uh, only in London. It was right. l- l- and then we sent the tapes other places, yeah. Sure. I mean, I wish I'd seen it more. I mean, I was 10 in 1966, and my parents' TV was in their bedroom because it's the only room they could get reception on. And every now and again, I was allowed to watch it, and always electrified by it in a way that I was never electrified by, say, Top of the Pops, for example. Mm-hmm. And Top of the Pops was tied to the charts, and I think what's fabulous for Ready, Steady, Go, it wasn't tied to the charts at all. Nope, not at all. I mean, we would have people you well, most mostly people you had never heard of. I mean, James Brown. We did an entire show with him, an hour show. Who the hell had heard of James Brown? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean, unfortunately, but it was great. And the same with Motown. Yeah, you know, we we use a lot of Motown acts, and then the the sound of Motown, which Dusty was totally responsible for. Again, it you know, Barry Gordy says to this day. You broke Motown. We did break Motown. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's, it's absolutely fantastic. Tell us about Dusty. She was a good friend of yours. She was one of my best friends, absolutely. When she first came in the office, it was because we had been picked up as a show and we're going to do the first show. And we thought the Springfields were going to be on the first show because they'd done the pilot. So she came in to say, no, no Springfields, you, you've, got, you've got me. We sort of looked at her, well, what are we going to do with you? Uh, uh, anyway, she started comparing being part of the show and kind of never left. She was always part of the show. But she and I just had a lot of things in common, unbelievably. I mean, we sort of came from the same place. We, there were, a lot of things were in common and we just became really good friends. And her manager, Vic Billings at the time, was absolutely magnificent. So, like, the three of us kind of went everywhere, did everything. And from then, right the way through to her death, I mean, we were friends. That's Even though you managed her, I mean, how did managing her fit with being a friend of hers? (laughs) (laughs) I think you have to find a new word for manage. With with Dusty, you... you, I mean, just going back a little bit, I mean, when the Pet Shop Boys had, what have you done to deserve yes. this? Ali Willis called me and said, do you know where Dusty is? Yes, I do know where Dusty is. Let me get hold of her, send me the record. I sent her the record and she was sitting in LA. And I said to her, it's great, isn't it? What do you think? Oh, I don't know. I'm not sure I should be doing it. What if it doesn't do anything? Dusty, it's not your record. It's the Pet Shop Boys record. Oh, I don't know. You know everything <laughs> was like, don't know, no. But then a day later, she'd call back and say, you know what, I've had a great idea. <laughs> and we did it. <laughs> so you can't, you can't say manage. All you can say is put things in front of her right. and give her, give her a cup of coffee and leave her. I love this. The first article we're running about you, which is an interview with you with by Toby Mamis for Phonograph Record in December '71. You talk about writing the English lyric to "You Don't Have to Say You Love Me" with Simon Napier Bell. 
you say, Dusty's a good friend. When she came to me with this Italian tune she needed English lyrics for, I was delighted to help. So we drank a bit and wrote them. We loved them. The next morning I hated them so much I walked around with Dusty all day before I got up enough courage to show them to her. She loved them and it's probably her biggest hit internationally. I mean, I love that. Except she didn't love them. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh no. No, no. She quite rightly said, these are crap. <laughs> yeah, yes, we know. That's why we're telling you. We're going to have to, yeah, we, we think we can get it. We just need some more time. You don't have any more time. I'm recording tomorrow. Okay, what do you want to do? She said, oh, I suppose I'll have to use them. Was her biggest hit. <laughs> well, it was either that or learning Italian, I suppose. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also in this Toby Willis interview to talk about Brian Epstein beginning to produce rock shows on Sunday nights at the Savile Movie Theatre in London. I did the bookings and all for him. We opened with Jimi Hendrix in 1966. What was that like? <laughs> that was a lot of fun too. I mean, first of all, it was the first time anybody had done music shows in mm -hmm. a theatre and nobody had done Sunday night concerts, which was so obvious. What do we all do on a Sunday night? Nothing. Watch Come Dancing or whatever it was called in those days. You know, so, so, so it was... Sunday night at the London Palladium. Oh, that's right, that's right. So, and we'd seen all those. So, you know, it was lovely. And, of course, because coming out of Ready Steady, I kind of knew everyone and I knew their manager. So it was really easy, again, to call up people that we all loved who were great performers and say, do you fancy doing, you know, a set? I think it was the, I think, I'm not sure, was it Jimmy and the Who on the very first night? I couldn't I'm tell sure. you offhand, no, but, yeah. But we, we had great people, yeah. I mean, it's, it's absolutely amazing. I, also, in relation to this, in this piece, it says, for a while, there's practically, talking about La Belle, there was a practically fifth member, Nancy Lewis, who's Tracks American publicist. Nancy, sadly, what, died last year, is that right? Yep, yep. Uh, she, she took me to tea once, which was a oh, memorable great. occasion. I said to her, what was Jimmy like? And she said, oh, he was a doll. <laughs> she, she's a marvellous girl. Anyway, so, so, I mean, it's so exciting. So now we moved to sort of 1970, 71. When did you move to America? About that time. Right. Yeah, exactly that time, yes. Any, any particular reason? No, mostly because I didn't have anything to do in England. And secondly, because my life is a disaster. I mean, thank God somebody picks me up. <laughs> I knew Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp. Yeah. They were my friends. And they, of course, managed The Who, and yeah. they had just started Track Records, which was Jimmy and yeah, Arthur Brown. And, you know, and they were opening a New York office. Right. Mm. And so do you want to run it? Yes, absolutely. You know, I can do that. So they said, well, you know, Nancy knows all this type of thing. She's American. Why don't the two of you run it? We ran it, but we ran it from a nearby restaurant just across the street called the Russian Tea Room. And we would be in there every lunchtime, probably about 12, 12.30. And they got to know us so well, they would put one of those old-fashioned phones on the table. And we could, we could call people from there. Kit and or Chris would usually join us at some point. We were there all day. We were never in the office. We were always in the Russian tea room. And that's how, I mean, Nancy I'd known from London, but she and I also became great friends in New York. And she and I took a apartment here. And one by one, it was when I was first managing LaBelle, who we'd signed to track records. One by one, the girls kind of moved in with us because they, <laughs> they, they all lived out of town and nobody wanted to keep going backwards and forwards. And Nancy loved it because Pat, when Pat had had an argument with her husband, Armstead, she would cook and clean. <laughs> so the apartment <laughs> was always very clean and we were always very well fed. <laughs> but, I mean, this is fantastic and actually leads absolutely smoothly on to the next thing, is, of course, is, is La Belle. To what extent was, I mean, it was Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells, who were, you could say, a sort of standard R&B girl group of the time. To what extent was their reinvention your doing? It really was mine. You know, it was obvious 
that three girls wearing the same dresses, the same shoes, the same hairstyle and gloves, et cetera, et cetera, were not going to have a future now. And, you know, I came from rock. I loved the sound of all these girl groups, but it wasn't going to happen. So poor Pat, who hated, <laughs> hated change, suddenly had this English idiot saying to her, you realize you're never going to sing Over the Rainbow again. What? 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 <laughs> no, we're going to do new songs. We're going to do Won't Get Fooled Again. What? <laughs> anyway, yes, it was yeah, it, it was time for a change. Well, it's, a, it's absolutely fantastic. Jasper, do you want to play the clip that we got? This yeah. is Ian Ravendell interviewing Nona Hendricks, who you've oh, just introduced okay. me to. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Your technical yeah. support so for this Some interview. people never go away. <laughs> <laughs> and this is exactly about all of that. OK, yeah. good. Let's have a listen. Well, it wasn't really a conscious decision of our own. A lot of it was implicated to Vicky. This and, is Vicky Wickham. Uh, Vicky Wickham, yes. She had known us for a long time and felt we had corresponded back and forth. And throughout the corresponding, she found out that we weren't doing so well as Patty LaBelle and Bluebells. Yeah. And then she said, you know, hey, there's two people, Kit Lambert and Chris Stapp, who manage the Who, who may be interested in you. And they came to see us at the Apollo Theatre in America, and they were interested, but not in Paley Bell and the Bluebells. They said, let's get rid of that and start a new day. So, in other words, they liked your abilities, but didn't especially like the material you were Yeah, were or using. the direction that we were in. And they transplanted us to London for six months, and Vicky actually did the work, worked with us, helped us, listening to different music, experiencing what we had inside of us as individuals. And that's how LaBelle was born, with the fact that you, we could be three female singers, individuals with their own identity, and perform without having to wear the gowns, the tiaras and the pumps, and mm. you know, sing oohs and ahs all night long. Fabulous, you know. Great, perfect, perfect. Good. Yeah. <laughs> what I like about that is that it's a story where people don't disagree as to whose idea it was to change yeah, from, yeah, yeah, from right. Patty Bell and the Bluebells. It would have been really awkward if the clip had said, no, it was all my idea. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I was stunned by LaBelle when, I mean, obviously Lady Marmalade was the first really huge hit, Alan Toussaint song. Was that recorded with Alan Toussaint in New Orleans or yes, not? Yes, he it didn't was. write it. Bob Crew. Bob Crew. Right. Right. But yes, we took it with us to New Orleans and Alan produced it. Yeah, I mean, Nightbirds is just such a great album, I think. I think it's, it's, it's not too extreme to say that LaBelle entirely changed the way women singing groups, girl groups, presented themselves. With no LaBelle, no TLC, no En Vogue, probably no Spice Girls, for God's mm -hmm. sake. You right. know, right. that revolutionary, I'd, I'd say. Well, it didn't last terribly long, though, did it? How did it sort of slightly fall to pieces? It's interesting. I was just trying to think. I can Only because I've been doing a lot on Ready Steady recently, so I know what that period was. No, LaBelle were probably, probably about five or six years at the yeah. most. And Pat, mm -hmm. really, she just, she, she'd been great. She understood LaBelle. She, you know, was happy. She was thrilled that she had, you know, a new life, a career, etc. But, you know, it was time for her to really be Patti LaBelle. Yes. And it just was. And you can see from where her career went, that's who she is and that's who she should be. It's perfect. And I'm you know? still a huge fan. I mean, for me, mm. let's say, the, those duets she did with Bobby Womack on Poet 2, that's Patti LaBelle, that, that turned up to 11 volume yeah. sort of, classic gospel R&B belter. It's just yes. it's a, yeah. it's a, it's a fantastic noise. But then Nona went on and did really interesting things like with material and so on and so forth, which is, you know, the sort of the New York art, punk, funk sort of territory, which is in itself a very interesting thing. So Yeah. Nona has always been adventurous, doesn't look back, moves on. Yeah. And, you know, e even now, I mean, she's... 
she's been part of Berkeley School of Music in Boston for maybe right. 10, 10 years. And she's always coming up with concepts, programs, ideas, a lot of technical things, a lot of, and she just, yes, she likes to do the next thing and move on, mm. which is great. Absolutely. I always, I always sort of see her in the sort of the same pool as people like Bill Laswell, yeah. defunct material, all of that sort of fantastic New York stuff that's coming out in the early 80s. Even James Chance and the Contortions and the sort of no-wave sort of territory. But yes. It's great how different, you know, from LaBelle to go One Direction, Patti LaBelle and One Direction, Nona Hendrix. Yep. But I think that, in a way, that sums up what makes LaBelle so great still to listen to now is that there were those kind of competing influences and ideas that made it then exciting to come together in yeah. that way. I think it was great. Yeah, because also if you listen to a lot of the LaBelle music that Nona wrote, I mean, you could kind of hear in there that there mm. were two sides to it. You know, Pat very much a marvellous lead, but the songs themselves and the way they were presented was something else, mm-hmm. which, which is what made LaBelle very special. Your lady mama The other piece we're about you, which is another interview with you by Caroline Sullivan for The Guardian in November 1999, which is quite... I mean, Wickham has done things that would make cultural historians sob with excitement. She ticks them off with a poise that makes her the very picture of the glamorous upper-crust lesbian about which she's up front, which I think is fairly, fairly marvellous. Well, again, I, and she, she, she also says that, that, that uh, I wasn't out in the 60s. I didn't know what I was, really. Everyone knew I was gay, but we were so politically unconscious. Uh, that, I mean, was Dusty out in the 60s? She wasn't really, was she? No, she wasn't. And she she couldn't have been. It, you right. know, think about it. It would have killed her career. Yeah, Nobody yeah. would have accepted a lesbian, Dusty, in the 60s. No way. Right, right. You know? Was coming out a sort of particularly conscious thing? Or did it just emerge because both men and women were coming out in the early 70s after Stonewall, for example, and all of that sort of scene? Okay, I'm I'm the worst lesbian in the world. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I really am. I've, I've never really paid attention to it. Right. I, I don't I don't think about it. I don't want to be lesbian, Vicky. I'm just Vicky. Sure. And you know, I've I've kind of missed the history of it, the problems of it, because I've never had a problem. I've always, as you can see, by default moved on the <laughs> moved on to the next thing. You yes. know. So I'm I'm just not a good person to ask about that. No, it's, 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 it's very cool. I mean, one of the things when we talk about the articles going to the library later on, one of the women writers is Lillian Roxon. Mm, who oh, great. Do, you, you must have known her quite Lo- well. Loved her. She was brilliant. Yeah. One of the pieces is actually headlined like uh, the great Nona Hendricks. It's about LaBelle. And Nona hardly appears in the thing at all. It's virtually... <laughs> <laughs> but she was a great documentary of the women's movement. That was, yep. you know, yep. Uh, yep. Uh, uh, very strong. So being in New York in 70, 71, 72, 73, must have been a pretty extraordinary experience for you in all kinds of ways. It, w- it was. I mean, it was so different to London. It, I mean, it couldn't have been more different. And it was very much a time of, well, of course, where Andy Warhol, yeah. Lou, Lou Reed, you know, all the sort of Iggy, I mean, the sort of emerging, interesting acts were coming through. The clubs were great. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, it was 54, but it was also not 54. It was all those little clubs that had their own atmosphere, their own music, own people. And you could walk into anywhere and have a different experience, a different crowd. I learned a lot during those times. One of the things I liked about the Caroline Sullivan piece you mentioned, Mark, is that it ends on, because you talked to her at that time about collecting Dusty's OBE, and Caroline's piece ends on, <laughs> should she ever be summoned to St. James's for an OB of her own, the palace functionaries will find themselves in distinctly regal company. And according to Wikipedia, you did then go and collect an OBE of your own. So <laughs> Yes, 
I thought that was a nice, Thank impressive you. kind Thank of... You. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yes, it is. <laughs> and were you a regal presence when you were collecting your OBE? Oh, of course. <laughs> naturally, yeah. naturally. Now, we've also got some of your writing up for this week. And the first piece from Fabulous magazine, 1964. Now, I was a fabulous reader when I was eight, nine, ten. I probably read this piece at the time. I had a picture of Millie cut out and put on my bedroom wall. Oh, my and her, God. And her eyes followed you round the room at night because all you could see were these eyes. <laughs> and, and, and you write this piece, A Pop Guide to London, and it's fantastic. You say, if you dig R&B, stand in Wardour Street between the Flamingo and the Marquee Clubs for a stereophonic sound. Georgie Fame plays at the Flamingo all-nighter, cheered on by fans, Rolling Stones and at the Marquee, Dishy Long John Baldry. Both singers and knockouts. But this piece is fantastic because... You name every single place. You realise how small pop music was in terms of its mm. breadth and locality. Is, is that everything that's happening in London is contained within about two square miles. Mm-hmm. I just love it. It's, it's such a fantastic piece. You did write, but you didn't write extensively, did you? I mean, what did being a music journalist, where did it stand in your life on a day-to-day basis? It definitely was not a huge part of my life, right. but it was it was fun to sort of have a purpose, almost sure. like keeping a keeping a diary, which I never did. So yeah. writing for the every week, you had to think, okay, what did I do? Who did I see? Who would be interested in what? Oh, you know, that's quite cool. So it was it was just yeah. kind of a fun thing to do. Yes, yeah. I mean the, the second piece is quite an extensive interview with Graham Nash. A point of you know the Crosby Stills Nash and Young time from for Melody Maker in June seventy, and he talks quite extensively there about the end of the Hollies, which was an interesting process. That Graham Nash, this guy who'd been part of this absolute solid chart pop group, grew out of the band he was in. And if you read other interviews with him, two years before he was growing, three years before he was growing away from them, they were baffled by him. The rest of the band scratching mm. their heads. It's a very nice interview, and he he talks about it was Tony Hicks, and he talks about him very fondly. But he's like a, Graham's now on a different on a different planet altogether. Do you remember doing that interview? Is that something which you have any memory of? No, no, not re- really. But of course, I knew Graham. Yes, I mean, we, we actually knew each other quite well from way uh, back. Yeah. So I mean, it, well, we weren't friends, but we were definitely people who knew each other. So yeah. it was a very easy thing to do, which was basically to let him talk. Yeah, you know, because he had something to say. Absolutely. And the last piece is, I'm just so pleased we're putting on because it's about one of my favourite acts, an interview with Ashford and Simpson for Black Music in 1974. I love Ashford and Simpson. I just think that... that Me too. You know, whether it's writing those fabulous songs for Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell or their, the great disco that they produced in the sort of the mid-late mid, mm-hmm. 70s. Yeah, um, yeah. So we're very, very pleased to have that. Jasper, have you got any... Questions you'd like to ask our honoured guest? Questions? I was sort of thinking while we've been having this discussion and sort of when I was doing my my homework prior to (laughs) to this recording, you went from doing Ready Steady to managing LaBelle with various things between doing some music journalism here and there. And you seem to just be able to do all of that kind of, I don't know, going along almost. And it's remarkable. How much did you have to try, I guess? I didn't. It's extraordinary because I would be a really bad person to talk to a young person about a career pattern. (laughs) You know, there was no career pattern. It was just where I was, who I knew, moving on. Mm. And you know how you just can do things? You might not have been asked to do them, but, you know, once you put in front of something's put in front of you, okay, you know, you don't even think about it. You do it. And I was so lucky because every job I had was something I was passionate mm-hmm. about. I never had to do something, This is, well, forget before Ready Steady, but after Ready Steady, I never had to do anything that I didn't want to go to work. I didn't want to get up in the morning, you know? It's fantastic. I mean, do you think that in some ways popular culture was more open for young women in working it back in those days, that... that, that, that it was a, not more level playing field, but because you were all inventing it at the time, that it was a space where girls, to all intents and purposes, you weren't much more than girls in many mm. respects, could kind of carve out things. 
I, no, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, we were, and also, funnily enough, because of the secretarial bit, it, <laughs> no, you know, as much as yeah. we all, well, most of us hated it, it was a way of getting your foot in the door. Yeah. Uh, and once people saw you and realized that you weren't stupid and you weren't, you know, that opened up incredible doors. I mean, I think that's how everybody really started was through that. Yes, no, that, that's really interesting. I mean, also that there were, certainly in the pop papers, there were women journalists, all of whom mostly, with the exception of, I'm sure, an old friend of yours, Penny Valentine, got driven out of by, by the men when music started, pop started getting taken terribly seriously at the end of the mm-hmm. 60s. But, you know, magazines like Rave, we had wonderful Dawn James on our podcast a while back, who was just fabulous. Mm-hmm. Maureen O'Grady, Sylvia Stevens, and people like that, fabulous. Yes, but yes. It seemed to be a very great time for young women to be involved in the pop industry in one way or another. Yeah. Do you think it got worse for women after that? No, I don't think so. I mean, go, going back to like the Pennies and the Carolines and the, yeah. you know, all the, I mean, I think it also made total sense when they were journalists because most of the artists that they were interviewing and talking about were male. Yes. And and I think that the the bands, like, I don't know, the Who, the Animals, whatever, responded to a nice looking young woman coming in and talking to them yeah. and laughing with them. And it became, you know, a real good thing. Whereas perhaps if a guy had gone in, it would have been a whole different thing. And True. do I do I think it's changed? I just think the world's changed. Mm. I don't, you know, I'm not sure that anything to do with, I think women still have every much chance as, as men. They just have to, you know, get on and do it. So you went into sort of other management Roles, and we're going to start talking about our audio interview because, for a, str- a stretch of time at least, you managed Morrissey. When did you manage Morrissey? Time wise, I can't remember, but again, you can't use the word manage. <laughs> Morrissey doesn't know what a manager is, hasn't right. got a clue. He was interested in me because he liked my history. Yes, that was, that was the only thing and the only reason he contacted me. And thank God I could tell him some stories. Because <laughs> that, that truly was, I didn't do anything for Morrissey. There was nothing to do. Because once you did something and you agreed with him on it, he'd just go and do exactly the opposite. And, you know, there's a point where you go, <laughs> you go good for him. He just should get on with it. He doesn't need anybody. He's going to do what he wants anyway. He's yes. fantastic. He's doing it well. I'm just getting in the way. Yeah. No, I mean, he, interesting. This is this interview from 1991 with Stephen Daly. And he talks about at this point not having a manager. That mm-hmm. He just doesn't feel he needs one. Of course, he's become a very controversial figure in recent years over his attitudes towards race and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. It's become very, very difficult. And I know that a lot of huge fans of the Smiths feel that in a way a piece of their childhood has been ripped away by his subsequent sort of attitudes and, and pronouncements. But it's a very good interview. He's, he's very engaging. We've got a clip here. This is when he talks about not being a sex symbol. I just simply find it very hard to believe when somebody tells me that physically I am what they've always wanted. So... Uh, and if they don't know me personally, which is usually the case, then it just becomes very abstract. Mm-hmm. But I certainly never, ever began to feel in the most self-opinionated moment that I would ever be considered a, a sex number. Mm-hmm. I'm not really, but uh, to some people I am. Mm-hmm. But generally, I don't convey any of that. <laughs> um, I mean, he's sort of funnily contrarian throughout the interview. He sort of he doesn't really seem to want. I don't know. It, it, there's a sort of strangeness about how he goes about answering questions and sort of really just saying what he wants to say. But he's a contra- He's always been a contrarian. I mean, you know, right back to the Smiths, he's a contrarian. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's, he's enjoyed that. 
it's, 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 yeah, it's just very unfortunate that his contrarianism's got so rancid in recent years. Yes, yeah, yeah. When was that? When was that done? That interview. Ninety-one. Oh, Around okay. time, Kill Uncle, I think, was the album he was promoting, and he talks about, you know, how other people perceive his music. He talks at length about his relationship with the press. He has a real goat Nick Kent. Right. <laughs> it's not the only <laughs> one to do that. He says, you know, I'm not interested in pushing musical barriers. It's fantastically rude about the mad Chester scene, the Stone Roses and all those bands. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, he was the immediately pre-earlier generation of Manchester bands. And by early generation, you're talking about, what, four years or something like yeah. that. And, well, we'll play another clip. He talks about Margaret Thatcher, who I believe had just been deposed. I think we're talking this interview probably took place within maybe a month of her losing ceasing to be Prime Minister and replaced by John Major. So let's have a listen to this. The kind people Have a wonderful dream Margaret Gillity What was your reaction that that Mrs Thatcher going at last? Well, uh, not the reaction that people may expect me to have. I thought the way she was quite literally publicly beheaded was uh, outrageous simply because uh, there was nobody to replace her. And she has not really been effectively replaced as yet. Um, So I found it all, I found it astonishingly un-English and very strange. But this is from the man who called for her to be... Oh, her policies, I always thought, were the work of the devil. And I never thought that she was misguided. I thought that she was purely intentionally evil. She knew the facts. <laughs> I thought it was funny that he, he says that she was quite literally beheaded, which yeah, she <laughs> quite literally wasn't. But it's very strange that hearing that, and you can kind of hear the seeds of that Englishness that he then gets fixated on in recent years, and it's just so gross. Because people like you Make me feel so tired When will you die? And we'll play a clip at the end of the podcast where he's so rude about the Cocteau Twins, it's just not true. So that's that. Sadly, we have our RIP section, Don't Fear the Reaper, this week, because there's been a, a series of deaths. It's a bad time for that all run. The first one is Walter Lear of Johnny Thunder's Heartbreakers. Did you ever sort of get involved in that CBGBs type of scene, Vicky? No. no Steered well clear of it. I, don't know. <laughs> I, I, I know who Johnny Thunder's is, but I don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you, you weren't in the mosh pit at um, CBGBs? <laughs> in, in, no, in 19... unfortunately. No, next time around I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Walter Leo died. I mean, the miracle is he survived as long as he did. The rest of the band all died a long time ago, mostly from various substance abuse-related issues. He survived by becoming an investment banker, of all things. Oh, my God. Did he really? <laughs> yes, he did. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, which, is, which is rather brilliant. But cancer caught him in the end. So we've got a John Savage and Pete Mikowski both interviews. Well, the John Savage one's particularly good because it's very much with Walter. The Pete Mikowski one is, or Mikowski, I don't know how you pronounce I must ask Pete how he pronounces his name, which is a broader one about the heartbreakers. Then, of course, another death this week, which is very sad, which is Steve Earle's son, Justin Towns Earle, who died at the age of 38, which is way too young, had a long history of substance abuse problems. It's a great... Very sad. Very sad. Very, very sad. Jack Sherman, who was briefly in Red Hot Chili Peppers, Glenn O'Brien meets him and the other Chili Peppers in their first year of serious operations. It's actually quite a funny interview, this. It's been it's, it's, in 85. It's, it's very, very good. He sort of says, you know, they, they, he asks them about their, their earliest memories and they can't, all sorts of strange things. It's, it's, well, it's, it's okay. worth a read, actually. Yeah, okay. It's good fun. Great, Vicky, yeah. did you ever meet Glenn O'Brien? Because he, he was yes. a... Co- you did, yeah. yes. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Because he, I mean, he, he wrote a lot for Andy Warhol's interview magazine, among other things. Yeah, he, he? he's been around for years and, and consistently good. Yeah, no, I, 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 he's absolutely, I mean, my job is proofreading this stuff. He's absolutely one of my favourite writers. And the very last thing is uh, David Nathan's view with a sort of an R&B singer who didn't do what he should have done, a guy called DJ Rogers, who was a Los Angeles soul oh, yes, singer. Yes, yes, yes. 
Hey, sirens going past. Um, I love that. Um, no, DJ, <laughs> DJ. Uh, <laughs> that's fantastic I love DJ Rogers I, I heard this album called On the Road Again and I guess 1976, 1977 and just just fell in love with him and yet you ask most even soul fans who is DJ Rogers and they have no idea who you're talking about mm. but he did the classic thing of actually going back to the church from whence he probably came and had apparently a very fulfilling life as a as a, as a preacher and a, a, a choir leader, and lived into the 70s. So that's our Don't Fear the Reaper section on the homepage this week. Some good articles there and some sad sad losses. Sad losses. Mark, would yep. you like to tell us what's new in the Roxback Pages archive for subscribers this week? And Vicky, we always say at this stage, please stick around and please jump in at anything that takes your fancy and you have any, any comments. We always like our guests to jump in. Absolutely. Well, the first thing is Chris Welch talking about, funnily enough, television pop in January 1966. And it's a, it's a part of a broader article, the rest of it written by Bob Dorbon. When will the raving have to stop? Chris Welch, melody maker, January 66. A man called Francis Hitching, mm-hmm. one of your old colleagues on yes, Really absolutely. Steady Go, is yeah. quoted in this, saying, our current show, there are no sets and very little scenery, and week by week it changes because the kids change. RSG now, compared to two years ago, is unrecognisable. He's defending the pop TV show when some of the other people quoted in this article are saying, it's all over. Did you sort of sense that in 19, early 66 that pop was in a bad way? Interesting. Uh, no, I don't know why they think that. I mean, it it, it had had basically it had sort of like six months ago before it really started to turn. Right. But can I just say about Francis for a second? He it was very important to Ready Steady Go because he was on the production side. But what he did was he took care of the budget, all the sort of stuff that I had <laughs> to gather no idea about. <laughs> he was terrific. He kept things running. He was the adult in the room, was he? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, it's curious because 1966, Revolving Rubber Soul had yet to be released. And in my job proofreading articles from that period, there is this sort of sense, a lot of people saying, where's pop going? It's like the, the, the beat boom was dissipating, was fizzling. Mm-hmm. Dawn James in Rave did this really wonderful interview with Steve Marriott from Small Faces very much around this time. And she's putting this to him. You know, it's all it's dying off. And he's saying, you wait, there's some really interesting stuff coming along. Great. And so, you know, he knew that actually artists were starting to, like, write far more of their stuff. There's a whole bunch of new stuff about to emerge. But you get a lot of this kind of stuff in the music press around then. People saying, where are we going? You know, is pop dying? You know, there are the editorials. Is beat dead? And so on. So mm-hmm. this is a very curious time. I'm curious, Vicky, when, it, when you were working on Ready, Steady, Go, to what extent did you pick acts that were visually interesting? And to what extent did you have to make acts that maybe weren't so visually interesting that <laughs> anyway? We, we How were, did you go uh, about that? Yeah, no, we were very aware of interesting acts. And by interesting, it was like the performance, mm. you know, not so much quite how they looked, though that was part of it, but particularly the Americans were performers. And uh, you know, I'm talking particularly about the individuals, whereas the English groups were the performers. And then, of course, in addition to that, or perhaps even more important, was the music. Did we love the music? Did we think other people yeah. would want to hear it? Yeah. And and then if we lucked out and found that people really could <laughs> present their music and had something interesting to do on stage, it was fantastic. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The Who was such a great example. <laughs> you, I mean, you could, you could listen to The Who or look at The Who forever, but you needed Keith, yeah. Yeah, no, they're absolutely, they, they were amazing. I love, we, we, I found somewhere, Anne Moses reported, I think it's in Life magazine, Elvin Jones being interviewed, and he says, Ginger Baker, he's nothing. He, you know, basically kind of implies he's all kind of mouth and no trousers. He says, Keith Moon, he is the who. Everything that band mm-hmm. does comes, comes through Keith mm-hmm. Moon. Yep. Um, I, I saw them at Hammersmith Palais in 71 or 72, and it was just one of the most extraordinary shows I've ever seen in my life. Just, just you know, they just roared off the stage. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) It was fantastic. Nineteen seventy one, Roy Carr reviewing what's 
called Led Zeppelin IV. The, it was the one with the four runes mm. title, which is kind of a lot of people regard as Led Zeppelin's greatest album. But Roy rather misguidedly here says, personally, I feel that one of Zeppelin's greatest virtues is that there's discrete economy in their performance. Nothing is overlong and never once do they overindulge when the solo spotlight is fixed upon any of them. Which is just tosh. (laughs) (laughs) Did Led Zeppelin mean anything to you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. They, first of all, were, I think, the reason that Dusty was signed to Atlantic. Right. And that was the Zeppelin connection. Also, Jimmy Page did a lot of sessions. So I, I did sessions with him in London Great guitarist had no idea he'd go on. <laughs> you know, just a very nice, great, talented player. And Zeppelin, of course, Peter Grant, who I knew forever. Of and, course. Yeah, and loved that whole thing about, uh, they, they were interesting. There was always something. Somebody had stolen their money or they done something with somebody or somebody had killed somebody. It was great. It was like a Daily Mail story every day. <laughs> Absolutely. Did you like Peter Grant? didn't dislike Peter Grant. I had no reason to. I mean, Peter was a very pleasant gentleman who always said hi. We always talked to each other. I had no reason not to. I never worked with him. Well, that's right, I suppose, because you had no sort of axe in the, to grind or vice versa, that he could be perfectly polite to you rather than holding you out of the window by your ankles. <laughs> no, or... <laughs> no, 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 thank God he never did that, right? <laughs> Moving on to the New York Sunday News, February 72. Lillian Roxon, who we were talking about earlier, clothes make the Bowie is the headline. And uh, he was just, she talks earlier about how he appears in dresses looking like Lauren Bacall on his album sleeves. But his new album, which is Hunky Dory, and suddenly he's moving towards what became Ziggy Stardust. But she says, you know, he's, he's about to come over to New York and she loves him. She says everyone in England's in love with him, which actually wasn't the case in February 1972. He, says, he and his band will have a promised 10 costume changes featuring mainly long patent leather boots and motorcycle jackets covered in sequins. Don't tell me I don't keep me up to date with everything. I love Lily Rox's writing. I mean, she wrote for Sydney Morning Herald and the, the New York Sunday News primarily. For the Sydney Morning Herald, she's a legitimate, straightforward journalist, you know, very much a reporter. For the New York Sunday News, which she had this column in, she's much funnier and very catty and sort of, you know, it's, it's, it's good stuff. But I suppose for Bowie, it meant nothing to Americans in 1972. So she probably did, went some way towards certainly introducing him to New York in particular, and out of which so much sort of carries on. Gary Kenton reviewing... Patti Smith's Horses, phonograph record in 1975, and he raves, merely by virtue of the intellectual and physical energies put into horses. It is the best album to be released in what seems like an entire generation, which is quite something to say. And I think probably lastly, I'll talk about a very rare thing, the review of the germs. Now, I, I, Vicky, I can't imagine the germs ever crossed your... <laughs> no, um, no, no. Stop, move on. <laughs> well, they were, an, they were an L.A. punk band. They were one of that first wave of the Los Angeles hardcore bands. This is the only album they released. This is the only review I've seen of this album. So I'm just very, very pleased to have it in the library. And their lead singer died weeks later. I'll just mention a couple of things. Sure. I added this week an interview with the Scissor Sisters. Lisa Verico speaks to them. I don't, they're a sort of early noughties, electro-clash kind of band. And it's a very funny interview again. Indeed, there's something slightly cartoony about Scissor Sisters. It could be the clothes. Shears' latest outfit is outsized leather overalls topped with a Batman-type cape, while Matronic has been seen in tight leopard skin mod bond girl gear and a nine-foot-long multicoloured fur stole she calls the Muppet Holocaust. It makes me look like <laughs> a cross between Mae West and George Clinton. I happen to be a big fan of the Scissor Sisters, particularly their first album. It's a really great record. I don't know. I mean, Mark, you like it too, I think. It's okay. I'm not. I, I look. I'm old. I don't listen to this modern pop music. <laughs> <laughs> They're great, anyway. I wanted to quickly mention I added a review of a Richard Pinas and Mertzbau 
two albums that, that French avant prog guitarist and Japanese noise king made together. I wanted to mention it because our friends across the corridor, we, when we're in the office, across from us is Rare Noise Records, and they're about to put out a new album by Mertzbau called Cuts Open. And so this is our first piece going to the library about... He's a real sort of pioneer, not music that means that much to me personally, but people that love Mertzbau love Mertzbau, sort of Japanese noise music. Mm-hmm and really prolific as well. So I just wanted to shout that out because it's our first piece on them. Barney had me add, uh, in his absence, uh, an interview with Ian McCulloch of Echo and the Bunnymen, who has an ego the size of several planets. <laughs> but it's funny because he talks about the music press, so I thought I'd mention that because he says, Enemy was the Bible. You'd learn words. There'd be five-page articles on Bowie. You'd read about the Velvets and television, and you'd want to find out about them. It got you through school. Melody Maker, everything about it was wrong. It was too big, the ink came off in your hands. And sounds was just shite. <laughs> <laughs> I'd just like to end up with one thing, because we just discovered last week that Dele Fideli, one of our writers, wrote the New mm. Musical Express, died two years ago and no one knew. It's one of those one extraordinary... We should pay tribute to him. Uh, and really... when Morrissey notoriously went on the stage at Finsbury Park when playing with Madness in 1992, brandishing a Union jacket created this... First Fury about Morris's politics. And he wrote this very long sort of essay about it, which ends, for what it's worth, I don't think Morris is a racist. He just likes the trappings and the culture that surround the outsider element. He has some racist friends. If he carries on this way, he'll have thousands more. So that's Morrissey knocked on the head. Vicky, it's just been fantastic having you as a guest. <laughs> Thank you. It's, it's been lovely. <laughs> it, it, absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, you know, it really has been brilliant. And, you know, you are someone who's been very much part of my landscape and my job for a, a long time. And also I realise my landscape and my life in terms of La Belle, Ready, Steady, Go, Dusty Springfield and so on and so forth. So it's been it's been an, it's been an absolute honour. Yeah, it has been. We'll be back in podcast wise in a fortnight, I believe, with Barney back in the office. He's quite he's right now sunning himself on a beach in Greece. Well, not absolutely right now. Earlier in the day, he'd have been sunning yes, himself. Yes, we, on... we we don't like him, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Spot on. And Spot we on. and yes, we're going to go out with a clip in which Morrissey is very very rude about the Cocteau Twins. Once again, Vicky, fabulous having you. Thank. Thank you so much. And we'll we'll say goodbye until we come okay. to next. Thank you guys. Bye. 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 They make me vomit. They do. <laughs> they make me vomit on sight. And I think their records are Do you remember Stanley Unwin? Yes, I do. Need, need I say more? <laughs> I think there's a ro- I think there's a right way and there's a wrong way, uh-huh. and I think they've always applauded themselves in doing it the wrong way. Mm-hmm. I think they're outstandingly unappealing on every human level. God. They look awful. Their interviews are awful, and their records are just utterly utter stupidity. Ice blink look. That won't impress anybody. Well, just <laughs> <laughs> touched an arrow. <laughs> Sorry. That was Morrissey in conversation with Stephen Daly in 1991, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Vicky Wickham. The host was Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. Wait, wait, Jasper. Your middle name is Bowie. Your last name is Bowie. My last name is Bowie, yes. Any connection? Well, it wasn't his real name. It wasn't David's real name. He nicked it. Oh, that's he was David right. Jones. That's right. He was David Jones, and then uh, it's, it's, it's been my. It's yes, all, it's, yes, it's my yes, family yes, name. yes. Okay, okay. No, no connection. No. Um, okay, shame. Never mind. <laughs> well, you know.